Hi, I'm Jeremy Ullman, and this is Abstract, a podcast where I'll be interviewing graduate students to learn about their research in a way that makes it accessible, bringing into the discussion aspects that are fun but challenging, covering a day in the life, and also just throwing around cool theories and groundbreaking findings that they've come across in their readings. My goal here is to tap into the wealth of information swirling around graduate students' minds, culminating from months to even years of research and reading. We're going to harness that knowledge together, one episode at a time. Before we hop into things, here is a list of the topics you can expect to hear about on today's episode. So we discuss the nature of sibling conflict, the general and three specific subtypes of trust, tools for conflict mediation, the importance of promoting positive interactions with other people, empathy, collaboration, friendships, family dynamics, nesting, identity development, and more. And we close it out with a deep dive into defining and characterizing work-life balance. Now, due to some technical difficulties for the first 21 minutes of this episode, the quality of the guest's audio is slightly lower than what you can normally expect here on Abstract. So we thank you kindly for understanding, and we hope you enjoy this week's animated discussion. Ryan Persram is currently a postdoctoral researcher with the Social Emotional Development Research Group at McGill University. He completed his PhD earlier this year in psychology at Concordia University under the supervision of Dr. Nina Howe and in collaboration with Dr. William Bukowski. So Ryan came to Montreal in 2011 to complete an MA in child study at Concordia after finishing his BA in psychology at the University of Waterloo in Ontario. As a graduate student, he's taught courses in human development and adolescence over the course of four years and has enjoyed meeting and working with so many future scholars and practitioners. Ryan's research program investigates the role of close relationships on youth development and well-being. In particular, he's interested in how the quality of sibling relationships and friendships can influence child and adolescent development. Ryan's Shirk-funded dissertation examined trust as a positive relationship feature between siblings and its associations with self-concept and psychopathology. With this line of research, Ryan hopes to better educate youth, families, and practitioners on the importance of these close relationships. Outside of research, he's an avid home cook and sports aficionado. So today, it seems like we've got the whole package on our hands. Without further ado, let's welcome Ryan Persram onto the show. Ryan, how's it going? Not too bad. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It is, it is a pleasure. This is a jam-packed introduction that we've got here, so I'm excited to break it down step by step. As I, as I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, today we're going to try something a little bit different, which is to thread together your life in the temporal order that it has passed thus far, and even extend into the future to see where this path might lead you. So let's, let's just start off with the basics. So we, we definitely went through the kind of schools that you went to, but if you had to uh, pick some highlights from the road or the journey to where you are now along your undergraduate and master's degrees, what kind of stories, what kind of elements of those degrees would you pick out to describe the experience? I think the one experience that I really drive towards is I guess my first research experience at, at Waterloo, it gave me my first foot in the door, gave me my first real experience in what I wanted to do, what I could see myself doing. And really what I did was I answered an ad one summer as, a, as an undergraduate and I had such a good time doing it. And I said, I could see myself doing this. I could see myself working in research, working with kids and uh, making a career out of it. And I said, this was one of the most influential experiences for me. So in your research, were you working specifically with children or were you studying children, if it's possible to even kind of have those things disconnected? Yeah, actually, we were working with kids in particular. So that first research experience I had was uh, we were interviewing kids on their experiences with conflict with each other. Um, okay. If you have any siblings, I mean, most of us do have at least one. Uh, it's normal for us to fight with them. So uh, it was pretty cool talking to them and getting their perspectives on how they fought with their siblings, why they did with it, and helping parents and training parents to sort of effectively manage their siblings' conflicts. 
And uh, so it was a real first chance to work with them and help them improve the ways they could do that, but also study that effect at the same time. So do you have siblings yourself? I do. I have a younger brother. Okay. So I'm also an older brother myself. I am a middle child. There's a sister above me, but I, I, I do understand in a sense where you might be coming from in the sibling hierarchy there. I'm curious to know when you started doing research, talking to young children about their sibling dynamics, did you see similarities and or differences between their experience and yours? And like, how did that, what did that look like? Was, was there some aha moment you had talking to even one specific kid about their experience? You know, it's it's funny you, you ask that because I think there's one thing that really drove home what what sibling conflict is all about and what we experience on a daily basis, even as adults with siblings. And it's about property. I mean, the more and more these kids were telling us about what they were fighting about, it's, well, he took the TV or or he's playing the video the same video game that I want to play. And so it was really about sharing property and resources. And when I think back to my experiences with my brother, even as an adult, and I do it just to taunt him now, but when you think about it, it really is just about the same thing. We, we talk about different types of resources, but it follows along the same idea that it's about shared property. So it was nice to sort of see that connection uh, when we're talking to kids, seeing that thread fall along with every, most of the kids that we talk to. And even the work that I'm doing now, a lot of them are just talking about it in the sense of, yeah, we fight because we have to share things. Hmm. You mentioned trust in the introduction. How does trust factor in here? So, I mean, there is an inherent uh, idea that we trust people. We are primed to trust individuals that we develop relationships with. And in siblings, you would assume that we can trust our siblings, um, much in the same way that we develop a trust with our parents and even our best friends and eventually as we get older, romantic partners and such. So trust between siblings is still relatively new. I think it's we've, something we've sort of taken for granted because siblings are just there. You can't really get rid of them. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was really what the focus was for my dissertation, was to sort of bring that idea out into the forefront and look at what are the consequences of trust. Uh, first of all, is it an important consideration? And how does that influence the individual well-being of an early adolescent as well as uh, sort of the relational well-being as well? So in terms of, I, I guess, what was, what was the answer to that question then? Where does, where does trust's role lie in, in relationship building? Uh, it, it's absolutely important. It's something, as I said, we've taken for granted with siblings. We've seen that trust has important consequences uh, or a lack of trust uh, has important consequences for well-being with parents as well as with uh, romantic partners and friends. It can actually be potentially harmful for them. And in this case here, we see with siblings that it actually is an enhancing effect. It's, uh, it's an important component. It's something that we absolutely shouldn't be taking for granted. Even violations of trust can also be harmful, but we can work towards managing that um, as we become better uh, able to sort of relay our ideas and, and, how to, and learning how to deal with those expectations uh, imposed on us. But long story short is, yeah, it absolutely is important in the sibling context, and it does have an enhancing effect for uh, trust between the sibling relationship. So can you teach trust to children? I don't think you can teach trust per se. I think trust is one of those things where it's a byproduct of other observable behaviors. Okay. So uh, trust is very much based on a, a history, a history of interactions, a history of observations. Um, and so if you've built up a, uh, an infinite amount of opportunities to interact with a sibling or, or anybody in particular, you start to ex know what to expect of them. You know that you can rely on them in certain circumstances. You know that they won't lie to you. Um, but these are all observable behaviors. So I think that in and of itself uh, will increase trust, not necessarily teach trust directly. So you mentioned expectations, which is a topic that I, that I like to talk about, think about, discuss. I think a lot of miscommunication at any level, any age between any two people is kind of predicated on a difference between someone's expectations and the reality of the situation. I guess to put it into a question, how big of a role does miscommunication play in children's relationship formation and trust building? Yeah, I mean, miscommunication is, is very important. And one of the things that we don't necessarily see too often is children being able to accurately convey what they want. So it's very easy to say, well, that's mine and not even justify it. 
um, part of that first research experience I had was training parents to use mediation, which allowed them to take a neutral side to teach children to express their emotions. We're talking about trust and expectation versus reality. It kind of seems like there's this, this cocktail of potential miscommunication, fighting, sharing, everything coming together. It seems like a bit of a complicated you know, social scene for, for siblings. So what are the interactions? What are the dynamics between these kinds of elements? Do we see any? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, one of the things that we see with young kids in particular is they're still growing up, sort of navigating their social learning. And that's why kids uh, fight with siblings so often, because A, they spend a lot of time with them, and B, they're, they're learning about these opportunities with their siblings as well as with their parents. One of the things that they have a hard time doing is sort of dealing with how to express themselves in a conflict situation. So um, describing what their motivations are, what they really want, why they want it, and even how they're feeling. Um, And so one of the things that we've been doing, and and that was part of my first experience, training parents to mediate conflicts and sort of having them take a neutral side and it sort of teach their children to be able to describe their motivations and emotions as accurately as possible and in front of the other siblings. So both of them can understand that there are two sides to this coin. And it's all about building up that perspective taking and sort of helping them to realize that there's a little bit more to it than just the issue at hand. There's different perspectives, there's different emotions, but at the end of the day, there's also a collaborative way to resolve this conflict as well. In general, did you find that parents were completely lost when it came to conflict resolution? Or are there these fundamental, uh, I guess, holes in our understanding as, as, as parents? And I say our understanding. I'm not a parent myself. But, <laughs> but for, for parents, is something not being taught to us that's fundamental to being able to actually resolve conflict with our children? Uh, I don't think there's, it's nothing, it's something that's not fundamentally taught. I think parents at the end of the day do the best job that they possibly can. And I think in this case here, sometimes it helps to serve teach parents, but also everybody in general, ways to constructively resolve conflicts. In the heat of the moment, it's often difficult for parents and for us to, as we fight with friends or, or siblings as, as adults. Uh, it's very difficult for us to sort of see things from an objective perspective. And only after the fact, when we think about it and we reflect on it, then we say, oh, well, you know what, maybe I shouldn't have said that, or uh, maybe I really didn't say what I really wanted to say. So I think with parents in this case here, any sort of tool to add to their arsenal of parenting is, is only going to be seen as a positive thing and something that they really want. Uh, to help them sort of manage things a little bit better. Because especially during times like this, during the pandemic, they're at home with their kids all the time. And I can only imagine how often their kids are fighting with each other over wanting to use the TV or, mm-hmm. or use the iPad or whatever the case may be. And as they're trying to work at the same time and as they're trying to make a meal and trying to just navigate daily routine, dealing with kid, their kids' conflicts um, can also be just be one other responsibility that they don't necessarily need to think, they don't necessarily think about uh, resolving in a more constructive or in an effective way other than just to say, well, both of you don't get it, which doesn't mm-hmm. really reduce the likelihood of that conflict happening again. Right. So you mentioned that there are tools that can be used. Are these tools the kinds of things that you were developing throughout your dissertation? If so, let's discuss what those tools are so we can learn and have some nice takeaways. Absolutely. Uh, The dissertation itself didn't exactly look at tools per se, but looked at the broader implications of using some tools like mediation to help increase the relationships between siblings. I think the idea of uh, sort of these tools as mediation, promoting positive interactions, sort of promoting conflict that is more constructive. Conflict is a, is a normal and an inevitable thing. I mean, that's, that's the long and short of it. We are going to get into fights with people. We can't avoid that. And I don't think the goal is to, to not have conflict anymore because I think conflict actually provides you with a number of positive experiences positive opportunities to develop things like perspective taking and developing empathy and and things like that. Um, But there are more constructive ways to resolve conflict that reduce the likelihood of conflicts happening again, but also teaches children, sometimes as adults, we need reminders that 
conflicts can be resolved collaboratively. We don't necessarily need to win a conflict. We can compromise, we can, we can give in a little bit so long as each of us get what we want. To us, that's still a win at the end of the day. Okay, I like this idea of collaboration. It makes it seem like the issues that we have in relationships with our siblings and friends at a young or even at an adult stage in our life, they seem quite similar. Are there, are there fundamental differences between conflict resolution and, and mediation when children and adults? So, yeah, I think there are, there are differences in uh, mediation. I would say mediation, I, I don't necessarily know in terms of adults per se, but I can speak to uh, sort of sibling relationships and sibling conflicts uh, between children and adults. I think we are much more able and capable of doing our positions and, and justifying our actions as adults than uh, kids are. But I think at the end of the day, the conflicts still maybe resolve themselves in a similar way because our siblings don't go anywhere. We can't change our siblings. We can't sort of take our siblings back to the store and return them. They're mm. with us until the end of time, unlike our friends, where we can choose our friends. Um, and I think there, we realize, at least in that case, there's more at stake with losing a friendship because you can, as opposed to losing a sibling, which is far more difficult. So how does this reality of choice influence the way that we interact with our friends versus our siblings and how our relationships develop there, at least from what you've seen? Yeah, so I think uh, we, 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 and I'm talking about this in the case of kids, kids are acutely aware of the differences between siblings and friends. They know that if they get into a fight with their sibling, with their sibling they know that their sibling's still going to be at home the day after tomorrow and the day after that. Whereas if they get into a fight with their friend, they may be a little bit more proactive at trying to resolve it constructively because if they continue getting into fights with that friend, they might actually lose that friend. The, the person could walk away from that relationship. And as kids move more and more away from home, they move closer towards their friends as they get into middle school and even into high school. Friendships form a big part of their social world. And trying to avoid uh, friends from walking away from that relationship uh, has much more of a, sort of a, an influence on them maintaining strong friendships than trying to uh, just constantly fight with those friends. So you are our resident relationship expert here. I'm curious to know what kind of advice you would give the youngest version of yourself that you can remember in order to better equip them for the future in terms of relationships. Ooh. What would I tell myself? Huh. I, I think the most important thing to remember, it doesn't matter what age you are, is just to remember to have positive interactions. I mean, it's so easy to, to remember and recall all the negative times, all the negative events that may have happened, or even treating conflicts, for example, as negative events. You, you, you're sort of primed to remember all of those things. But I would also say take time to remember the positive interactions that you because they're, they are memorable in and of itself, and they happen more often than we think. And I think we take those opportunities and those types of interactions for granted. Hmm. Do you think purely by focusing on the fact that we have positive interactions that will beget more positive interactions? It almost seems too easy. It almost seems too easy, but I mean, sometimes easiest is the best way to think about it. It's, it's, especially in the case of sibling interactions, the likelihood of having another positive interaction is to have a positive interaction to begin with. So some of the work that we've been doing and, and that I'm hoping to do in my work going forward is to look at siblings who may be engaging in high levels of sibling aggression, for example. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways to possibly reduce is to not only reinforce consequences the aggressive behavior, but also to be up uh, and praise and reward all the times that siblings engage in positive interactions with each other. Mm -hmm. Because it's so easy to forget these types of things because siblings are always around you. For these young kids, they spend close to 12, 15 hours a day together. So they're, they're always going to be there. And it's, it's going to happen when you get into fights or you're, or you're, going to you're obviously going to be interacting with them. But it's easier to remember those events than it is to say, well, remember that time I shared that toy with you? Remember that time you and I sat down and watched a TV show together? Uh, it can be very easy to forget those types of events. But reminding and praising those types of interactions can actually increase the likelihood of positive interactions between siblings, which then reinforces 
a strong bond between them and a byproduct of that is an increased trust between siblings. And as they get older, they know what they can, their siblings are capable of expecting from them, as well as the ways in which they can be instrumental in helping them going forward. I like that you're really driving home this idea of reinforcement. It's very Pavlovian. <laughs> Sounds like we're yeah. reducing children to dogs, which they are in a sense, you know, definitely malleable minds. And uh... for kids to learn, sometimes teaching them about the rewards and consequences of, of certain types of desirable behaviors, but also um, sort of undesirable behaviors are, are best taught through sort of these these types of parent managing techniques, as well as behaviorist types of techniques. I'm curious to know, given that you have dedicated so much time now to studying children, is this something that you knew you wanted to do since you were one yourself in terms of a, a career path? Like as a child, were you fascinated with other children knowing that when you grew up, you'd want to study them? Or is this more of a recent, uh, recent development? I would, it, it, it's very much a recent development, something I figured out, I guess, in my undergrad. For me, it was always like I wanted to be a scientist or I wanted to be a teacher in some way. So in, in its own unique way, what I get to do is, is a bit of both in many teaching kids these types of techniques, working with kids and helping them to understand perspectives of their siblings and reducing conflict, but also the scientist in me is being able to study a lot of this uh, in, in such a unique context. So if you enjoy teaching children, but you're heading down uh, the academic route, can I assume that you would like to teach adults about how to teach children? Yeah, absolutely. Um, part of the joy that I get out of it and that I got out of my time at Concordia was being able to teach human development in adolescence. So I, I used to chomp at the bit at teaching child development when I did uh, Lifespan. So you, get, you just get naturally excited about teaching adults about what it means for children to develop in so many different ways, through so many different relationships. That really got me excited. Understandably, I remember in my undergrad taking, I, I think it was the last course I had to take before I graduated and I decided to take a child psychology course. And it was mm -hmm. fascinating because we've all been children. We've all been there, but we didn't have the wherewithal to analyze our own development or the development of other children at the time. So looking back on it is quite eye-opening. It's super interesting to, to look back because we all have experiences. I mean, we were all children one point end of low quality audio so my next question is about empathy so we, we already mentioned this this idea of empathy this is i think a word that most of the listeners have heard of in relation to compassion potentially i'm curious actually just to kind of set the the field here is there a difference between empathy and compassion and how would you describe that hmm I think there is, I mean, there's probably a subtle difference between empathy and compassion. I think in my sense, sort of empathy is sort of having an understanding of the other person's emotionalities, um, sort of what they're feeling in given situations and, and sort of respecting that we have different emotions in given situations. Compassion is, I think is, I think compassion is a, is a much broader construct to consider, uh, not necessarily attributed to the person per se, but towards maybe the situation or towards, I guess, towards a cause or to some sort of event. So I think that empathy can be attributed to the, uh, based on sort of what I, my limited understanding of it is probably more towards the individual uh, versus compassion, maybe towards more social causes or towards sort of that broader uh, construct. Sure. I can appreciate that might have been a bit of a tough question, <laughs> given that your, your field of research or at least your focus has not been on compassion specifically. That's just been one of those kind of dichotomies or related terms that I've been curious to know more about. So in the event that you had some magical answers, I figured I'd put it out there. From what you've seen when you're working with children, um, what, is, what is the youngest age that you've seen children exhibit empathy towards other kids? Yeah, I, I mean, I think when you're thinking about the idea of empathy, you've got to sort of start thinking about what are they capable in terms of thinking about perspective taking and do they understand what that is? Now, theory of mind, I believe you had a, you had a guest on uh, before talking about theory of mind. It comes in all shapes and forms and can emerge as early as infancy. And I think in this case, empathy and perspective taking the earliest we're probably able to see it is probably around four-ish. So just sort of 
right when they're becoming increasingly verbal, they have far more experiences with social interactions with people uh, and with kids that hopefully with kids that are around their same age as well. Because I think empathy really requires that perspective taking ability because you have to understand or have to be able, able to understand somebody else's perspective, somebody else's emotions, and not only understand that, but understand that they may be different from what you're feeling and what you're seeing as well. That basically sounds right down the same line as theory of mind. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess maybe they both kind of evolve together or empathy is like a byproduct of the development of theory of mind. Absolutely. I really do believe theory of mind is sort of that foundational social cognitive uh, milestone that we all go through. And, and uh, it's sort of, it's interwoven with a lot of the work that I do, but a lot of what you see in child development or even just lifespan development um, when we study relationships, yeah, it's important to understand how we, how we as individuals develop, but how we develop within those relationships really requires that understanding of perspectives and how ours, our perspective may be the same as or different from that other person. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to kind of bring things a little bit back to your research explicitly, as opposed to kind of dancing around these general topics. I, I think it's been nice to set up a bit of a foundation for the next part of our discussion. So now I'd like for you to actually just verbalize for us the title of your PhD thesis. The title of my PhD thesis was uh, the idea of looking at sibling trust as a predictor of psychosocial well-being in early adolescence. Okay, and let's just get the 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 two sentence redux answer to that to that inquiry. So, two sentences just to give a general conclusion is that sibling trust was an important predictor, an important positive predictor of individual and relational well being, but there are also some nuances in terms of looking at the types of trust that can be protective, but also serve as a risk factor, a uh, possible risk factor for well being as well. Are you saying there are different types of trust? Absolutely. I think oh, there Okay, let's break down the types of trust. Absolutely. So uh, the prevailing idea is that uh, we have this generalized trust. Like we can say that we trust our best friend or we trust our partners. But some of the more contemporary, some of the more recent literature has also argued that trust can be domain specific. And so one of the sort of the theories that I used as a guiding theory for my dissertation was one that looked at trust using three different bases. The first was reliability trust. So how much you can trust that an individual uh, will be there when you need it, uh, will be there to help you when uh, in times of trouble or times of distress. A second base would be trust honesty. So do you trust people to tell you the truth? Uh, do you trust that people won't lie to you and they will be genuine and honest with you? And then you have a third type of trust, which was uh, emotional trust. And that's the type of trust where you hope that uh, you place this trust in people that they won't cause you an emotional embarrassment. So in a, in a given situation, maybe a social situation, they won't go out of their way to embarrass you and, and cause sort of a scene, for example. So those are sort of the three common mm -hmm. uh, sort of bases or types of trust that we've been looking at. That's super interesting. I've never heard trust broken down into subcomponents of trust. Very interesting. Very it sounds like they're definitely in, interrelated. I'm almost okay. imagining them in this like triangular trifecta of like bi-directional influence Absolutely. where reliability kind of factors into this emotional trust. Definitely. They sort of feed into each other in, in, in their own ways. I think that's where you get the idea that general trust is also a thing. I think general trust is also an important construct to look at. But you can also, like many other broad phenomena, you can look at that based on their subtypes. And oftentimes, you're going to see that those subtypes are all correlated with each other in some way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. Okay, that was getting what my next question is, is, are they correlated? It sounds like there's definitely something going on there. Yeah, absolutely. So in my dissertation, one of the components of that was to develop a self-report measure. So one of the things with kids is we often measure things like this using vignettes, little short stories that ask children to, or ask children and youth to sort of put themselves in the situation of somebody else and think about how they would respond. 
But given that we're working with early adolescents, they're actually more capable of responding and reflecting on their own behaviors and the behaviors of others. So I developed a self-report measure for that. And what ended up happening was I didn't actually pull an emotional trust component. I actually pulled a reliability and an honesty trust out of the three. So uh, just by looking at those two correlations alone, there is a high degree of overlap, but we're also seeing a high degree of uh, unique variance with each of those factors. So while they are correlated, they actually still do explain a lot on their own without having been, without having that relationship with each other. That's very cool. Once again, levels of trust, not a thing that I knew about before. <laughs> levels of trust, a thing that I now know about. Do we see, I guess, uh, I think I already asked kind of a question about relating or at least comparing or differentiating children from adults do we see different levels and different ages for the development of these different types of trust or variations, large variations from individual to individual on these measures? Yeah, it's a very good question. I don't, uh, I haven't seen anything in terms of looking at the development of trust and I mean, looking at trust scores and the stability of it. I can say that within, at least within the context of my dissertation and the research that I've looked at, the levels of trust in, I would say, between seven and 11 year olds uh, is about stable. Uh, the scores tend to be about the same. They don't really change too much. Uh, that's, that's a function of looking at it from a cross-sectional perspective as well. So just taking it from one time point. But I think I would like to think that as we get older, because trust is not something that we necessarily understand as a child. And when I say as a child, maybe as a three or four year old, I don't think it's easy for children to understand trust as a construct it's a little bit more complicated it implies that not only do we have to have that perspective taking ability but we have to have an understanding of what each person that we have a close relationship with is capable of and i don't think by three four even five year olds have that full capability of understanding what they're capable of let alone what other people are capable of in in an act as accurately as they think they can I would say that once you get older, that those scores tend to be a little bit more stable. And I think they probably become stronger and maybe even obviously more selective too. Once we have more experiences with other individuals, once we build up that history of interactions with everybody else, we know who's capable of what. And what you might end up seeing is divergence of scores on the different bases of trust as they pertain to specific individuals. So just to kind of bring things a little bit back to when he spoke about siblings versus friends and how you know that the siblings will be at home the next day, can we safely assume that the amount of trust that you have in your siblings versus your friends is different? And if so, how do those mechanisms work and which, who trusts who more if, yeah. if there is that difference? Yeah, absolutely. I think the trust is different between siblings and friends. I think there are different ways we can think about trust between those two different relationships. As you just said, I mean, siblings, we know they're going to be home at the end of the day. So you, you can sort of trust, if you want to use that word, uh, that they will always be there in some way. But the type of trust uh, that friends have with each other is, I think it, it requires more work. It requires more building up and it requires them to literally start from scratch. So they're the, those, are for, those come from the beginnings of that relationship. So when we think about friendships uh, that, that begin in childhood, those are very much based on mutual liking. So I like you, you like me, we have, we're wearing the same color shirt or we're, we have the same, the same toys. And then it, as it develops, as they get into middle childhood, so at about nine, 10 years old, then they start describing it, well, I like this person because they're loyal to me. They do mm -hmm. things for me and I do things, I do things for them. So it's based on reciprocity. But then they are also start throwing out the word trust. They, I, I can trust this person to help me when I hurt myself or, or if somebody's bullying me, for example, maybe that I, I can trust my friend to, to help me when I need that. So I think there's a different situation, uh, types of situations that they face that increases that level of trust. In the context of siblings, though, I think because the relationship, they still have to put the work in to build and maintain that relationship. But I think the work that goes into it is a little bit different than it is with friendships. And that's where... Uh, sort of the research that I'd like to take, look, comparing these two relationships would sort of help tease apart those mechanisms about what goes into building trust within the sibling context, as well as what goes into building it in the friend context. And then taking that a step further, how do violations of those trusts uh, sort of harm the relationship? Because 
you, you can't sort of break your sibling relationship. So what does a violation of trust look like? I think you can uh, break your sibling relationship. You can. I think you Yeah, I agree. I think you can. I think it's harder to do that in childhood, though, because I think okay. you also have those expectations of parents saying, well, you know, you can't, you can't walk away from your sibling. You can't not talk to your sibling. But I think as an adult, yes, we have a lot more freedom and a lot more control over walking away from that relationship or, or choosing not to talk to that person for however long you want. Mm -hmm. Okay. I just want to make sure that we do agree that people do have the free will illusion or otherwise to decide who they want to be. uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. In their life, not to mislead anybody. (laughs) So given that I, I, I've never spoken to anybody else in your particular field, I'd love to get an idea of what the big debates are surrounding your research. Generally, from my experience researching and studying psychology, there are are generally two to three prominent ideas about how some mechanism operates. Maybe we could talk about trust. Are there any huge kind of head-to-heads between different sides of different theories? I think it's not necessarily a head-to-head debate. I think the main question that we and I'm not going to say it as developmental psychology in general. I mean, I'll focus specifically on sort of relationships and relationship development. I think the main question uh, or the main debate that we have is how much of an influence do each of these relationships have? And let me, let me be more specific. How much unique influence do each relationship have on children's or adolescent development and well-being? So um, how much of... Uh, the influence of parents or how much of the influence of siblings and friends each contribute to that development. And I think it's a very difficult question to ask because there's so many different outcomes, so many different consequences to look at, and each one will explain a different type of influence and unique influence at that. It's very difficult to collect data of this magnitude as well. And so it's it's not entirely clear what the unique effect is. And then adding on top of that, because we're developmentalists, looking at it in terms of the age period or the age group in which the influence comes into play is still another question as well. So that can also change over time. As kids move more and more away from home and more into the schools, you might see more of an influence of friends, maybe even siblings, more than they would have with their parents. But that's still very much a question of debate, depending on sort of what variables you're studying and also what age periods we're looking at. Is this like a nature versus nurture kind of thing? Or are we purely just talking about the relationships here? So the environment. Sorry, this is, this, is, this is a ridiculously large question here. <laughs> but you know what? I mean, as much as we say we agree that nature-nurture is very much a, a, a balance of both, it still comes into play, because, especially in the sibling context, because there are genetics at play. There are shared genes between, uh, between siblings and um, how much of personality, how much of our behavior is dictated by those genes, which then result in how we fight with other people or how we learn from those experiences, come back to understanding empathy and understanding theory of mind, all of that has sort of implications uh, or consequences from genetic markers. So that's still very much a debate as well. I don't know how much of of sort of that head to head is because I think it's very, it's still sort of unclear at what's what can be done in terms of teasing apart the unique influences of genes versus uh, or genetics versus the environment. But it's still very much an important question that we ask. And and we're working towards finding different ways to sort of tease them apart in a way that is not necessarily as universal, but also, but in a way that makes sense to sort of give equal weighting or give equal importance to both of those arguments. Because we really do know that being raised in the same household for siblings is a result of shared uh, environmental factors, non-shared environmental factors on top of all all of the genetic factors that are at play as well. Right. So there's just, there are too many things to keep track of here, which is, which is why the debate's a little bit muddy. Exactly. I mean, every field, every domain has its own challenges per se, and they have their own complicated challenges. And I think with studying relationships and child and adolescent development, yeah, nature and nurture will always come into play. 
but there's all of these other variables that we have to consider, uh, especially in siblings. We have to be able to account for a number of siblings within the family. What are the qualities of those relationships? What is the age difference between those siblings? So what's the age gap between the older and younger sibling, for example? All of those are important variables to consider because not all the time you're going to get all siblings that are between four and 10 years old that have an age gap of two years. It just doesn't work that way. It's not uniform in that way. As compared to friends, you can go into a classroom and you can make the assumption that pretty much that entire classroom will be between the ages of 10 and 11, 10 and 12 years old. Uh, So it's a lot more challenging when we study the family and study siblings. And then I would just say that the last sort of major debate too is how do we deal with nesting? So as we know, nothing is not nothing. Uh, a lot of stuff in relationships is not uh, independent. It, a lot of it depends on other people's behaviors or other people's reactions or other factors. And so this idea is that the individual is nested within a relationship, which is nested in, within a broader environment. So how do we deal with that? And how do we account for all of those variables if we really want to understand what development looks like for a particular group or a particular uh, relationship? This almost sounds like you're talking about identity here, where the individual is actually not individual at all, especially once they enter into one or many relationships, which is the case from the moment you're born. Absolutely. I think there, there's an element of identity, which we don't really call it identity development per se, but I think when we study the idea of nestedness and uh, how, they, how they develop these relationships, what we're also looking at at the underground, at sort of in the background rather, is their identity development, because identity is also a function of their behaviors. Um, and so that's very much in the background when we study uh, sort of the behaviors and the development as they go, grow up from early childhood and adolescence. And that's where identity really comes to, to fruition. Okay. I don't think we're going to explore the identity. <laughs> that's going to take us down a whole different rabbit hole whole new plate. For, a different, for a different time. But I'm curious to know if there is a model for relationships in, in general. I'm just kind of trying to picture diagrammatically how you would lay out the individual within their like familial niche. Mm-hmm. Just maybe something just a little bit more complicated than a family tree in terms of the, the effects of relationships and the strengths of those effects. Mm-hmm. Does anything like that exist? Have you come across anybody who's tried to create a model for the interrelationships between an individual and their family? I don't think I've come across a, a, a sort of a, a, hard and fast model of relationships. I think we generally acknowledge that because every relationship is unique in its own way as well. And they're all sort of interconnected with each other. I think the idea that we all agree on in terms of a model of relationships really pertain to sort of the characteristics of those types of relationships that have a significant influence on our development and well-being. And that's really what it comes down to is having close, intimate, and meaningful relationships. If we have those relationships that we think are close, and close can not only just be defined by proximity, but also defined by how well we know one another. So building up all of those histories of interactions. Intimate, so being able to share personal information, do things like self-disclosure, for example. And then being even more targeted and looking at those meaningful relationships, the one types of relationship where we say, if I lost this person, it would actually hurt me. Or, or if I, I feel good when I'm around this person, those are the types of relationships that are seen as meaningful. I think if we meet at least two or three, all three of those criteria, those are the models that will say, okay, well, those have a significant influence on, on sort of how I navigate relationships going forward. Um, those give me that sort of internal working model. If you want to talk about sort of cognitive model of, of, of relationships, this is our sort of script on what successful or what relationships should look like and what relationships that have an influence on me will look like. Okay. So you actually just officially started a postdoc at McGill University. Congratulations. Thank you. And so you would like, I, I think we actually referenced this earlier on, uh, that your potential future path could include teaching adults how to teach children about things like trust and whatnot. So without me putting the words actually in your mouth, from where you are now, where do you see yourself in the next few years, potentially through and after this, this postdoc in, in terms of the experience you've built, the experience you'd like to have in this postdoc and beyond? What's the, what's the path? Absolutely. I, I, I think the path has, has been something that I've, 
really been striving for for a long time now. And it's, um, I've been, I've been focused on getting a tenure track job at a faculty position because I believe that to sort of be able to be effective, one way to do that is to be in a position where you can, where you can do that. And I think uh, faculty positions or even positions where with, with government or policymakers can actually affect change, can actually be positions of influence in order to be able to teach people about the importance of relationships, the importance of child development and the influence of all of these sort of sources and the resources that can influence children's development. I, I love doing research. That that's that's something that I've really loved doing for the last ten plus years. Something that I'm I'm enjoying doing it in my new position at McGill. And um, with that, um, I also love teaching undergrads. I love teaching incoming practitioners. I'm mean, students who are interested in clinical psych, but also getting at those who are interested in research as well, and sort of giving them that what's what I uh, what my advisor called is the research bug. And when I say we wanted to teach adults, I, I really am talking about like undergrads, but also teaching about sort of the general public as well about how important these relationships are through either through preventative work or intervention work. And not necessarily, it doesn't have to happen in the clinical setting. I think it can happen in community settings, in public talks, in, in sort of providing these types of workshops for parents. Uh, and I'm, start, and this, I'm thinking about this now more because of the pandemic, I guess, too, because I understand and I, and I can only appreciate the families who have young kids at home that are having a, a really difficult time sort of working and managing their children's lives as well. And so trying to give them and trying to help them in any way we can with providing them with tools or resources to help manage things as best as they can during these difficult times is, is something that we should all be striving for. I absolutely agree. I, I think many, many people would benefit from, like you're saying, almost like some kind of new policy or some mass community education on what to do in a situation like this. I think there's a lot of people who, who you know, they post on social media, this is my situation, this is very difficult. And then it's a lot of, you know, self-soothing. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, there are no voices of reason to come out of the woodwork and say, hey, I have the answers. Or hi, I have some idea of how you can help yourself. Absolutely. Maybe and you will be the light at the end of the tunnel. I, I hope so. That that that's something that that I really am working to to do. And 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 I will say just to come back, it, it doesn't necessarily have to happen at a faculty job. But I think if there's an opportunity to affect change at any level, whether it's at the community level, grassroots, at a university, but also at a policy level, I think that is also something that we should be striving for. Because I don't think there's enough resources to help parents, young parents, even parents. I mean, even older parents who have older children. There, I don't think there's enough resources in terms of helping them, especially in times like these. You heard it here first from uh, Ryan Persrev. There are not enough resources. Let's get our act together. I'm curious to know, I, I feel like I'm curious about a lot of things. I guess that's why I'm doing this podcast. But who, if there has been anybody, has influenced you the most to take this very long path down studying child development and ultimately, hopefully, affecting policy changes? Was there somebody early on in your life or academic career who kind of sparked this interest? I, I, I don't know how, I, it's hard to say because I don't really know how I got into psych per se. I think the, the running joke that I use is I, I answered an ad in my undergrad that got me started in research. Right. Uh, I, I, I've grown up always wanting and always been interested in helping people. And so I think the only person I can really think of that really got me started and, and he'll enjoy the fact that I brought him up on this is my brother. Uh, okay. Bring good. it back to sibling relationships. I got to bring it back to him because it, yeah, I did answer an ad, but I also sort of had a feeling. I also, I also realized that we also, we have all of these relationships and we also want to help everybody. And I guess he was the sort of person that got me started on it because the more and more I got involved in that research, the more he started to push me to, to start thinking about these questions a little bit more critically, uh, look at my relationship with him more critically, and start thinking about how do how do we go about helping people uh, going forward? Like, what can we take uh, in science and helping everybody else? Because I think there's still, I mean, we can talk at length about how the barriers between academia and the real world, but I think he was the one person who's also told me that you know you have to break it down to people like me who don't understand what you're talking about. 
I hope he listens to this episode. Oh, well, that's sure the goal, that. right? You know, that's the goal of this podcast. I don't know if I mentioned it earlier on, but you know, we're trying to break down the barrier between graduate research and the general populace. So this is available to everybody, and it's from your your mouth to the ears of the of the many. And we need more of this. And I think this is a fantastic idea. There shouldn't be any barrier. I think the goal should always be to get it back into the community. The community are invested stakeholders in what we do. And we should have a vested interest in bettering our society. I think part of the reason why we get into these programs, uh, doing PhDs, doing graduate school, is to better society in, in some way. So I think in, in many ways, the research that we do helps to do that. And we should be breaking down those barriers in order to accomplish that goal. 100%. I'm on your side there for sure. So great. Future, who knows what's going to happen? You never know. You can plan for it. I'm, I'm, I'm really intrigued by the fact that your younger brother, who knew younger siblings could be worth something, kind of helped guide you down this path. Is your maybe this is getting too personal, but is your younger sibling the kind of guy who's who's mentioned that he wants to have a closer relationship with you and figure that this this research could help bolster that? We we don't really talk about wanting to have a closer relationship. We I think we've had that um, all along. And uh, obviously, I, I don't live at I don't live in Toronto, which was where my brother and my family are. Mm-hmm. And so I think the distance of being away has sort of forced us not not necessarily in um, in a direct way but has really forced us to have a closer relationship because of that distance he, he isn't that type of person that would do that but I think because we have such a strong relationship we've always looked for each other to, to better each other in in each of our goals as well so helping us to both achieve our goals uh, in any way that we can you guys are you guys are power duo sibling sibling relationship going on there at least when, until I get home and then I get to antagonize him. But of course, when it's face to face, you can always be a little bit more antagonistic. Exactly. Bring it back to the old days. Yep. So this is, this is a, a question that I, that I like to ask to most, if not all of my guests, because I, I am truly curious once again. I'm going to try and come up with a list of words I can use besides <laughs> curious. It's just, it's just kind of a catch all. So just to be straightforward. How do you maintain a healthy work-life balance as now a postdoc and previously as a, as a almost lifetime academic? What's the secret? So I struggled with this question throughout grad school. And I, wait, wait, wait. Do you struggle with the question or do you struggle with the actual balance? I feel like there's a difference. Okay, there, there, you're, you're absolutely right. There is a difference, and I think I struggle with both. Okay. Because A, the question is, I don't know if, what does balance mean in, in a work-life balance? Somebody has always, I mean, not somebody, a lot of people have said before that, you know, you try and do 50-50, but it doesn't work that way. And not all of us work towards a 50-50 balance. Some people are just more work-driven than others. And so for someone like me, I've always been more work-driven than, than I, when I say life-driven, I guess relax a little bit. I enjoy the work that I do. So that 50-50 doesn't really work, to, uh, work for me. Um, I can't say that I was implying a 50-50 or that that yeah. necessarily is the gold standard of work-life balance. But, I, but now that it's coming up, this is great. Keep going. Tell me more. Where do you lie yeah. on, that, on that percentage spectrum then? Yeah, I think the percentage spectrum, I, I think I fall more on sort of that 75-25. And I think that's just the, the sort of how I was raised. I was raised uh, work, work was very important. Work is what gets you to where you want to be. But that's not to take away from, from taking time off, taking time off and having a life and, and things like that. So that's sort of what I've been, what I've grown up on and, and I've really respected and I sort of held true throughout my undergrad and graduate career. But I've also, I think in grad school, the question of work-life balance doesn't get asked enough. And I think that's part of the reason why I had a hard time sort of thinking about what it meant and how do we even address it. I think it was only until just before I finished my PhD and, and sort of I've been thinking about it now as I've started the postdoc is what do I, what do I want to achieve in life now? I think grad school has always been that priority because it takes up a lot of your time because there are a lot of demands that, that have to be met. 
but at the same time is if you also have other personal life goals, those should also not, I mean, those shouldn't be put on the back burner, but it's up to you to prioritize how important they are in relation to grad school, consider knowing full well what the, what the time investment is. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's always been a difficult thing for me to answer because I never really knew, and I guess I never really gave myself any guidance or looked up on or even spoken about it. I think that was the other thing too, is just not talking about it often enough. That's why we're here. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so I guess how I got through it was, I guess I, I realized that I'll, I'll be honest, I realized it a little bit too late towards the end of grad school that it was more about, there was more to uh, life than just school. Um, so I made a point of it to, um, there were days where I just said, okay, no, I'm not doing anything this day or, or I was very strict or I got very strict about my schedule. Um, and so that's sort of where I'm taking it with a postdoc now is I'm being very strict about the hours in which, or I'm being stricter with, with the hours that I'm working, um, being more uh, refined with those hours, especially working from home now too. That's, that's a whole other concern. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm glad that you brought up the 50-50 at the beginning there, because I think, I truly believe that the percentage isn't really not as important as the, as the feeling that you ascribe to your life. I think that's, that's really what I meant by the question and what I it's maybe personal but when i ask the question it's it, it's kind of like how do you feel about the balance in your life not um are you meeting some some criterion for balance sure. right so it isn't some objective truth whether you're balanced yeah. or not for the guests that i've had who have said that their research is so enjoyable they don't even feel like they're working mm-hmm. the answer is very simple the, the work-life balance is 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 right where it has to be because you're getting the work done and you don't feel burdened by it yeah, absolutely. that idea of burden really is um, when you need to think about if the balance is is right for you. Absolutely, and and I think I think you said something very important there. And it's if you're doing something that you love, then your work life balance should be should be good. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't feel like you're doing work at all. But I think the important thing there is you're doing what you love. You're re- in this case in grad school, you're researching something that you're absolutely or or actually invested. In. And I don't, I think if you're not invested in that research, uh, you will have a harder time trying to balance that, whatever that balance may be. You'll have a harder time with that if you're not absolutely invested in what you're doing. Grad school is a long time. Grad school is five, six, seven years plus. And if you're not doing what you love, then it could be an extremely long time to get through it. Mm-hmm. I think it's, a, it's, uh, that fact of either loving your work or having a tough time is what really messes with a lot of graduate students and not even just graduate students, anybody. If you are not a graduate student and just, uh, just working in any field outside of academia, then this discussion's for you as well because many people find themselves in careers or in specific jobs that they don't really love and it does feel like a very big, like uh, just a huge grind every day to yep. complete that work. And so I'm just one example of a graduate student who actually withdrew and then pivoted fields. So I'm actually in between graduate degrees right now. After one year in my graduate in psychology, I made the decision to pivot fields to apply to a different non-thesis-based master's in teaching. I realized that I wanted to teach more than research. And so I just made that decision outright to leave and then pursue something else. And I, I encourage people in any position in their life to take stock of where they're at. Best case scenario, you're totally thrilled. And if not, then you can maybe bring up some interesting discussions about where to go next or what your options are. I, I don't think it's productive to kind of just stay where you're at because it's either safe or familiar. So once again, that's kind of why I bring up this question. This, this is the first time that my work-life balance question has been so fruitful as you kind of bring into discussion all these different types of balance. I think you specifically, you know, you said 75-25. That's great. If you really enjoy what you're doing, you shouldn't be judged for being a quote-unquote workaholic or for, you know, being super dedicated to your work. I think it's actually admirable. I, I absolutely agree with you. And I think just to come back to, to your story there, I mean, kudos to you for making that decision. Because I think the hardest thing that people do is it's they fall into that rut, they fall into that grind, and they maybe they feel stuck. And if you fall too down that hole, it becomes harder and harder to pull the trigger on making that change. 
And so to anybody who's listening and, and any, anybody who feels that way, even in grad school, I mean, I, I, it, it, people feel stuck in their research. If you feel that you can make a change, if you feel that you want to make a change, do your homework first, but make sure that you're doing what's best for you. Because at the end of the day, no one else is going to be able to do it for you except yourself. There you have it. It's all out of the table. <laughs> We're getting real here on Abstract today. We are. Thank you for, for joining us. I'm going to close this off with the final question, which I have asked all of my guests, and I plan to do so till the end of time or until I get canceled. So if you could describe yourself outside of academia using one to three words and also as an academic, one to three words, and then compare those, what would the words be and would they be the same descriptors? I would say, I would say the, the one thing that, that sort of threads between academic and personal is ambitious. I, I'm, driven. I, I know what I, I'd like to think I know what I want. Um, I, I'm goal driven. I, I, I always look for a direction and look for a path. The second word, again, woven through both of them is I'm caring. Um, I fully realize uh, that everything that I do it is a result of my relationships with other people. And I don't take that for granted. And, and the care that I put into the work, but the care that I put into the relationships is all interwoven with each other. And that, that's super important to me to be, to have that sort of trait. Good for you for being confident and self-aware enough to <laughs> state to the public and myself that you are both ambitious and caring. I think, I think many people might, might be a little more bashful, but I like that you just went for it. <laughs> you know what? I mean, I will say, I mean, we've all done the applications in grad school and, and even when you're just applying for anything, uh, it's hard to sell yourself. So I'm sort of taking a personal lesson right now and trying to Do sell it. myself a little bit here. <laughs> you're still, Ryan Perseram, ambitious and caring. If you're listening right now, are you single? So that, okay, so then I can throw the third word out is, is third word humble. Yeah, okay. Of course, yeah, we have to finish the trifecta there. Yeah, yeah. Finish the trifecta. No, can I, it. Um, the, I guess the, the, third, the third thing I would just say is just a broader thing about me is just I'm, I don't know, I, I don't know, it, it, it's, it's, it is actually very hard to describe yourself. And in my case, I think it's hard to describe myself that's separate from an academic because I've sort of always been identified as, as an academic. And so like identity, identity, absolutely. Back it's, there, right that's what this is all about. it's all about. The it all identity. falls down to identity. But seriously, um, this is, this is why I asked specifically because academia is a kind of thing where it occupies really everybody on this podcast has been in some academic context their entire life. Right. Yeah. For the yeah. most part, unless at some point I bring guests on who are older, who've dipped out of academia and then back in, it is your life. It is, it is, it is kind of directly woven into your entire being. Absolutely. I mean, we think, you think about, uh, as you just said, I mean, young academics have spent, I guess, a good portion, if not the majority of their adults or uh, sort of post-secondary education as an academic in some way, shape, or form. And so for it to not be part of your identity is, is, would be honestly very surprising to me. But I would say, I guess the third thing that I would say about myself is probably add the word creative. And creative, I can be more um, specific to at least a personal attribute in terms of, I, I, in the description at the beginning, I mentioned that I'm a home cook. So mm. I, get to be, I, like, I love being creative in that way. Just uh, It's a good way for me to unwind and sort of explore in different ways. So I can be creative in that sense in a very different way that's not academic related. But then in academia, I can, I'm creative in the ways that um, I can think about the types of questions. I can work with people to, uh, to think about different types of projects or riff off of work that I've done or that other people have done. We get creative in our own uh, fun ways. So it's creativity, but creativity that can be done in so many different uh, contexts, which is which is also very fun for me. An adaptable creativity, if I may. 
absolutely adaptable creativity incredible good ambitious caring creative maybe humble hard to tell (laughs) cool so this is this is basically gonna wrap up the episode for today if if there's any point for the listeners by the way when you listen to this episode and the sound quality changed just know due to some technical difficulties we had to actually record the episode on two different days and so uh apologies not in advance because it's already happened but uh apologies post hoc to you for 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 having that slight inconsistency there we're hopefully going to be back to regular high quality technologically non-problematic programming next week so that's it thanks again ryan for coming on the podcast it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you so i will see you around 100 percent. thanks so much for having me and uh this has been a lot of fun awesome likewise thanks for listening if you liked what you heard you can check us out at abstract cast on instagram if you have any feedback please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.